Well, hey, and welcome to the Quad City Podcast, where we are on mission to make more and better disciples of Jesus everywhere, always. We're so glad you're joining us in that today. Well, before we dive into today's sermon, would you do me a quick favor? Would you go ahead and open your app store and search Quad City Christian Church? Download our app because it's the best way to stay connected with what's happening here at Quad City. If you're new joining us for the first time, click that new here form as we'd love to reach out and connect with you. You could also submit prayer requests and even give on that same app. It's the best way to stay connected here at Quad City. Well, hey, now that that's out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into our sermon from Sunday. We hope you enjoy. Welcome. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are honored that you've chosen to start your week off by worshiping with us here at Quad City Christian Church. I want to welcome all of those who are joining us online from whenever and wherever you are, as well as all of those out worshiping with us in Prescott Valley today. So grateful to have you with us this morning. Well, today we are continuing this series that we began a couple of weeks ago called Beyond Belief, and the premise of this series is pretty simple. We live in a culture, the the American, our nation still says, claims that 81% of Americans believe in God. And my guess is that because we live in an overwhelmingly red region of our state in a very conservative county, that number may even be higher in our neck of the woods. But what scripture makes clear, especially in the book of James, is that we have to get beyond belief. We have to get to the place where what we believe actually changes what we do. And so today, as we're going to learn, there's really only one kind of faith that matters, and that is a faith that results in actions. And so we're going to dive into our text this morning, uh, starting in James chapter 1, start in verse 19. It says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. One of the things that I've heard many times, and actually heard it coming in today from somebody in here, that they love the book of James. Everybody loves the book of James because it is a practical book. There's so much to get out of it. Um, We all love it, and this verse is a great example of that, of how easy it is to understand. We all get it. Everyone, this everyone, by the way, includes you, everyone, you should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. You don't have to be a theologian to understand what he's saying here. Like, that's easy to understand. Not easy to do, but easy to understand. Imagine for a moment how drastically different our world would be if we could just get everybody to do that for a day. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Imagine, imagine how different Facebook would be if everybody did that. Imagine everybody on X, formerly known as Twitter, 
It's kind of like the Prince thing, formerly known as how different that would be if everybody on there was quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Imagine how different the courthouse square on Tuesdays would be. Few of you know. If everybody down there was quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. But don't just leave it out there somewhere. Imagine how different your Thanksgiving dinners would be if everybody was quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Imagine how different your marriage would be if both of you were quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Imagine how much better your relationship with your children would be if you actually took seriously the command to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, here's what we know. Many of us don't do this. We don't do this. And there's a reason that we don't do it. We aren't quick to listen. We aren't slow to speak. We aren't slow to become angry because we're right. And the sooner that they realize we're right, the faster we can move on with our lives. And thus, our refusal to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, the refusal is actually because our anger comes from a righteous place. At least that's what we tell ourselves. But James doesn't say that. He says human anger, including your human anger, does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Your political anger does not produce the righteousness that God requires in the world. You're not going to get there by that means. Nobody has ever changed their political ideology by listening to a Facebook rant. Wives, your anger toward your husband is not going to produce the righteousness you would like to see in him. Fathers, your Anger towards your children is not going to produce the righteousness that God desires for them. Sure, you may be able to make them behave in the way that you want them to in that moment. You can force them into compliance with your anger, but it will not produce righteousness. It will only produce bitterness. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. And right here, we're honing in on the thing that helps move us beyond belief. It is this picture that as a believer, the word of God has been planted in you. The gospel that has come got planted in you. It's the same imagery that Jesus used when he talks about the, the sower who spreads the seed and some of that hits good soil and it produces roots and creates fruit. James is alluding to that same idea that you have to accept that word that's planted in you and the way that you accept it is through obedience. We have to get rid of all of the moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, it's everywhere, it's all around us, it's in your pocket, it's on your phone. We have to get rid of that moral filth. And the way that we get rid of it, the imagery here, get rid of, or some of your Bibles may say, rid yourselves of all moral filth. It's the imagery of taking off a set of clothes. 
Likely, you've, we've all had some kind of moment where our clothes were soaked through with grease or oil or lake water or sewer water or paint or mud or sweat. And we've had that moment where our clothes are just clinging to us, soaked through with something. And here's what we know. No matter what you do, you cannot call yourself clean if you still have those clothes on. You have to take those off. That's what he's saying. That's the point. You have to get rid of that moral filth and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. It's through the acceptance of the word planted in you that can save you. And the way that we accept it is through our obedience to it. Rejecting the word is disobeying it. That's what rejection is. I reject it by disobeying it, and I accept it by obeying it. You can't say you are accepting the word while you are being disobedient to it. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I'm convinced that one of the greatest deceptions in the church today is that coming to church or joining a service online and merely hearing the word is spiritually beneficial to us in any way. Now, don't mishear me. I didn't say coming to church and hearing the word isn't spiritually beneficial. What I said is coming to church and merely hearing the word or listening to the word. Merely listening to the word is not spiritually beneficial. What makes these moments beneficial to us is not you coming and listening to the word or hearing the word. What makes this moment beneficial is what do you do next? What comes after this? Just coming here and listening is not beneficial spiritually. In fact, I think for many it could actually be detrimental. And what makes it detrimental is that we end up leaving and we're feeling good about ourselves because I sat through another 40-minute sermon, which could have been 20 minutes, and I learned all about the, you know, James was Jesus' brother, and Jesus had siblings, and he was an important leader in the church, and none of it actually changes anything in your life. When we come and hear the word without doing the word, we actually make ourselves more accountable to the word. We leave feeling good about ourselves, but it has no bearing on how we actually live tomorrow. And James looks at that and says, if that's you then you are deceiving yourself. You're deceiving yourself. You're convincing yourself something good's happening when it's not. It's a lie. It's self-deception. Merely listening to the word has no value unless and until you do what it says. You have to do what it says. He continues, 
Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a servant who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. What this means is that anyone who's sitting through a sermon or reading a book or listening to a devotion or hearing a podcast, sitting in a Bible study that takes tons of notes, and wow, that's really good, never heard that, that's wow. It's like somebody who gets up in the morning, looks at themselves in the mirror, and goes, ugh, and then just turns around and walks away. None of us would look at that person and say, wow, you are truly a devoted person. You care so much. You looked into the mirror. You didn't do anything, but you looked. Like nobody gets credit for that. Like nobody gets credit for looking in the mirror and knowing and believing and seeing, recognizing, wow, I should do something about what I see in that mirror. Like somebody should do something. You only get credit when you look in the mirror, see what needs to get fixed, and then actually go fix it. In the same way, no one gets credit for looking into the mirror of the word of God, hearing it, seeing it, having it be revealed that there's things in my life that need addressing. It doesn't matter how much I know it, how much I believe it, even how much I preach it. Without doing anything about it, it does you no good. James says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So here's the alternative to just looking in the mirror, seeing all the problems, and walking away as if everything's okay. He says, no, no, no. we need to look intently. Like, you gotta stand there a while. You gotta figure out what the problems are, and then continue in it. Keep on going. It's not a one-time thing. It's an all-the-time thing. You keep doing it. And then, when you figured it out, when you've heard, when you've seen, when you've believed, then you gotta do it. They will be blessed, not by what they believe, by what they do. By actually putting, putting it into practice. Now, where would James get such a crazy idea that just simply believing isn't enough? That you actually have to do something about what you've heard? Where would James get such a nutty idea? From his big brother, Jesus. Who in Luke chapter 11 says, blessed rather are those who hear the word and obey it. John 14, he says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Matthew 7, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. What's the difference between the wise man and the foolish man? It's not whether they hear the word. The fool hears the words 
They both hear it. They both maybe believe it. They both understand it. They both know it. They may even both teach it, but it doesn't matter. The difference between the wise man and the foolish man is the wise man hears it and puts it into practice. The foolish man hears it, writes it down, walks away, and does nothing. And he's a fool. One of the stated core values here at Quad City Christian Church is that we do the hard things. That's why I'm preaching in our t-shirt today. You can pick one up in the lobby. And it comes from passages like this. Because we believe that following Jesus is not just about affirming a set of doctrines. It's not just about believing a set of truths. It's about actually allowing those truths to dictate how we are going to live. And if you choose to actually begin to do what the word says, you will learn really quick that it will require you to do things that you do not want to do. And James is gonna give us a couple of examples right here in our text. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Now, you see the word religion pops up here a couple of times and for us that has a really negative connotation, although it shouldn't. Religion simply means you putting into practice the things you say you believe. That's what religion is. Somebody believes something and the religion is them putting it into practice. Okay? We all have religion. You believe things, and the way that you believe affects how you live, okay? So James has this crazy notion that, it, that everybody has these spiritual convictions and belief, and they're going to act on them in some way. That's what he's pointing to. And he starts by saying, those who have a belief in God as, the, as Christ their Savior, here's what they're going to do. They're going to keep a tight rein on their tongue, if they don't, then what, everything else they do, it's useless. Now, we aren't going to spend much time talking about the tongue um, because in chapter 3, he spends almost the whole chapter talking about the tongue in chapter 3. So we'll get to that one later. But I want to lean into the next action step. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Of all of the faith practices, of all the thou shalts and thou shalt nots in all of scripture, James says, you know what? There's one, there's one that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless to look after orphans and widows. Because, and I wish I could convince you of this, I don't have time, you just got to take my word for it. God's heart is for orphans and widows above all else. You can do the study on your own or talk to me later. But it's all over scripture. Take my word for it. His heart is for orphans and widows because they are the most vulnerable people in this culture. Now, things have changed a little bit in the last 2,000 years. In America specifically, it's not necessarily true that widows are among the most vulnerable among us. That's just not true anymore, okay? Uh, we have... Many widows in our church who 
perfectly capable to take care of themselves. In fact, they're so wise and have done so well and managed their resources in such fashion that they actually spend their life taking care of others. Okay, so that part has changed. But what has not changed is that orphans are still the most vulnerable people in our world today. Help paint the picture for you. Right now, in our world, there are 163 million orphans. 163 million orphans in the world today. And that number goes up by 5,700 kids every day. Just to help paint the picture for you, if you took the 10 largest metropolitan areas in the United States, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, Dallas, Miami, Atlanta, Philadelphia, Phoenix, Washington, D.C. You take all of these metropolitan areas. Now, not just the cities themselves. When I say Phoenix here, we're talking about the whole valley, 4.7 million people. You take all of these metropolitan areas and you add them all up, you get 80, almost 81 million people, which is less than half of the number of the orphans in the world. Right now in the United States, there are 414,000 kids in foster care. 414,000 in foster care. And of that 414,000, 117,000 of them are waiting to be adopted today. In other words, 117,000 of them will never be reunited with with their family of origin because it's not safe. And they're just waiting for somebody to come and say, I'll take you into my family. Every year, between 20 and 30,000 kids age out of our foster care system. I mean, they've been in foster care and they've never been adopted and they're 18 and now they have to leave the system. Between 20 and, 20 and 30,000 every year. And just so you know, of those 20 and 30, 30,000 kids who age out, 25% will end up homeless, 56% will end up unemployed, 27% will end up in jail, and 30% of the young ladies will end up pregnant as teenagers. These are the most vulnerable people on the planet. In Arizona, there are 10,000 kids in the system statewide. 10,000. Some are in foster, some are in a group home. Some are sleeping in a county administrative office because there's nowhere else to put them. Because, here's something we can be proud of. Because right now in Arizona, there is one home available for every four kids in need, which is twice the national average. The most haunting statistic is that while the life expectancy in the world has now risen up to 69 years of age, the life expectancy for an orphan is 30 years old. Which means that when a child ages out of a rough uh, uh, orphanage in Russia at the age of 16, they are... They are past the midlife for their demographic. 
Like the numbers are staggering. And it breaks God's heart and it should break our hearts too. And there have been seasons in our church where we have declared that it is not going to be enough for us just to believe that this is an important issue, but we're gonna be a people who actually take steps to do something about it. And I wanna share a couple of those stories with you. I'm Joe Ziz, this is my wife Heidi, and we've been attending Quad City for the last 10 years now. I'm Greg Mingarelli, and this is my wife Sheila Mingarelli, and we've been attending Quad City Christian Church for 100 years, I don't know. So uh, early on, when we were dating, probably before we were married, we were talking about you know how many kids we wanted. I said two. I thought maybe four. I was on the board of Community Pregnancy Center, and obviously that's pro-life organization, just focusing on trying to get children born, you know, help moms choose life. But as a result of being on that board, I realized, uh, gosh, it doesn't end there. You've got a whole life that you may end up needing to pick up the pieces for when it doesn't work out. So shortly after we got married, I had this desire um, to participate in orphan care and adoption and foster care in some way. And we just weren't in a position where we could do it because of house size and all different kind of circumstances. We actually reached out to an agency that did international adoptions and we got some information in that regard. And, and Partially just because that's where we thought all the orphans lived. <laughs> we, we were naive enough to not really know that there were orphans in our own state. I just said, listen, we, we've got to stop talking about foster care and, and orphan care until we're in a position to do it. And I heard, we are not doing foster care, period. One of the things that really struck us as important was really for the rest of our kids. We, at this time, had five children, and we felt like it would be important for our kids to understand what it was like to really sacrifice and serve others. We were moving out of one house and into another house, and, and that really did open the door. Jason was preaching, and he said something along the lines of, you know, some of you have been sitting on the fence thinking about uh, doing orphan care, foster care, and some of you just need to get off the fence and do it. And I think it was at that point that I leaned over <laughs> to Heidi and said, hey, yeah, we really are in a position uh, to really start talking about that again. So maybe, maybe we need to pull the trigger on that. Most yes. couples are not on the same page on this particular calling or ministry or whatever until they are. We didn't jump forward with our license right away until Jason had a sermon about adoption. And of course, we thought he was speaking just to us. So we left that day and we went ahead and called and said, we're ready to move forward with the licensing. Yeah, so we, we got Gavin and Lauren, uh, I think it was May of mm -hmm. 2010. And it was our first foster placement. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, uh, a year later, we were in the courtroom uh, and went through finalizing the adoption. So our first placement um, was a two and a half year old little boy. Uh, he was harder than we thought was possible and there were definitely times that you think what have we done what have we said yes to 
He didn't have much of a vocabulary, but he did have some words that our children were not allowed to use. <laughs> and, you know, they do. They try to prepare you in the classes for what to expect, and uh, we were not prepared for him. So our second placement left rather abruptly, and um, we were all brokenhearted, all of us. We were both thinking our, our kids are going to be devastated. Yeah. And we were just like crushed. But our daughter, who was six at the time, as soon as the caseworker walked out of the front door with our second placement, um, the door shut and she turned and looked at Joe and I and said, well, I wonder who God's bringing next. And we're like, these kids are better at foster care than we are. Yeah. yeah. So fast forward about five years after our first adoption and we're licensed again and we get the call about Trish and Keisha. Um, the caseworker says, they're only going to be with you for four days. We've got a placement for them on Monday. So, and, well, and I, at that point, I stopped shielding it. Well, we can do anything for four days. And I said, and Keisha's <laughs> deaf. He says, oh. So over the course of um, six months, we had seven different placements. Um, one of those placements leaving was very difficult for me. And in that season of loss, I asked the Lord if he would send kids that could stay and be part of our family forever. Through the course of the weekend, uh, you know, they, they were supposed to go to this other family placement, uh, we'd learned, yet Trish uh, came to Sheila and uh, just said, you know, that placement's not safe. And that's really kind of all she said. And we really took that to heart, right? Like we, in just a few days, bonded with these girls and wanted to make sure that they were safe and protected. So at that time, right, we had four biological kids. And you'll remember that Heidi wanted four kids and I wanted two. You know, I guess God just uh, found a compromise for us by just adding those two numbers together. And so two of those placements did stay with us. And now we have six kids. So four days turned into four days. Turned into four life. There's really nothing that fully prepares you for what's coming. It, it was eye-opening once we got into it and really started doing it. But I will say that the challenges, the every single day challenges, did strengthen our marriage. I mean, it kind of forced us to come together and work out every day, every detail. Um, so we're thankful for that challenge. Just because God, I mean, answered Heidi's prayer, right, and gave us two more kids, in, in no way does that mean it's been easy. Orphan care is very complex because of trauma and people and a system that's broken. This journey has really helped us understand that our life is not our own, that through the sacrifice and, and everything that we've gone through, uh, it's, it's been difficult, but it also brings a deeper joy and a deeper love for life and our family that we wouldn't have had having not gone through this. Yeah, you certainly recognize the blessings because uh, they're surrounded by a lot of hardship. The reality is uh, signing up for this has brought pain into our family. Uh, our kids and Heidi and I have experienced pain because we've, we've said yes to this. But, but these kids are already in pain. They, they already exist. We are told in the Bible to care for them. And in that caring, we can choose 
to come into their pain and hold it with them and lighten their burden and lighten their load of pain by absorbing some of that on to us. Uh, one of the really cool blessings that we've experienced, I think, is just seeing our adult children uh, serve at a level we never thought uh, would even occur. And, and it's really because of Keisha, who goes to the Phoenix Day School for the Deaf and lives uh, down in Peoria Monday through Friday. We were contemplating hiring someone to stay with her so that um, she'd have a place to live. And Brady stepped up and said he'd be willing to take care of her during the week. Um, and subsequently, same with Austin. Austin now takes care of her Monday through Friday. You have to kind of come to grips with the fact that you may not be able to, to fix all of the things. You won't be able to fix all of the things. But it doesn't allow you to say, well, we can't make it perfect so we're not going to participate. Those outcomes are out of our control. What's in our control is obedience. And it's amazing to see kind of how this comes full circle where we initially were trying to deliver something to our kids where they would learn sacrifice and service. And now we see it happening at a naturally. whole different level than we ever even could have imagined. So when I think about our core values, we teach the Bible, we do hard things, we multiply disciples, and we're better together. I don't know of a place where all these things collide in such a powerful way as they do in this space of foster care and adoption and orphan care. Those are just a couple of the stories that we could have shared from people in our church who during that season picked up the mantle and said, I'll, I'll step in and I'll do it. And that's what pure and faultless religion looks like. And why is it pure and faultless? Here's why. Because when you do that in the life of a child, they can never pay you back. They can't. Because it looks like pure and faultless because what you're doing requires great sacrifice to your life and your comfort in your family. Because you're doing something for them that they could never do for themselves. As I was preparing for this message, I was saddened to realize that the majority of the stories like this happened in a season over a half decade ago in our church. Like I couldn't think of a, one of these stories that has started in the last five years in our church of a kid being adopted. And that's on me. And somehow over the last few years, I've let this become a back burner issue for us. But we need to be a people who care about this issue. We should be a people who see adoption as the greatest testaments to our faith because this is God's heart. Don't believe me? Then let me ask this. How many of you have been adopted? Okay. Let me take you to Ephesians chapter one for just a moment. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us 
for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So let me ask you again, how many of you have been adopted? Like God is not asking us to do something that he was not willing to do. We should be adopting people because we are an adopted people. Like each of us were spiritual orphans. So God showed us what pure and faultless religion looked like when he did something that we could not pay back. And he, what he did required great sacrifice. But he did it anyway because he knew we could not do it for ourselves. And I love what Heidi says. When we could look at these children and look at these orphans and we could say, oh my goodness, it's so sad that they have so much pain, but I don't want to invite that into my life. And I'm so glad that we did not have a heavenly father who said that about us. But instead, he gave up all of his comfort and stripped himself of all of the heavenly glory that was rightfully his, and he came down to carry our pain because those kids are going to have it whether we join them in it or not. And I'm glad we have a father who did the same because he did not just take away our sin. He could have done that, but he didn't. He didn't just take away our sin, but he invited us into his family. James makes that point by reminding us of this truth. He says, religion that God, and he could have just said, religion that God accepts as pure and faultless as this, but he doesn't. He says, God, our Father, accepts. Because he invited you into his family. He didn't just forgive you of your sin. He gave you his name. He gave you his spirit. And he promises you to be in his home forever. We are called to do the hard things. And I will tell you, and all of these people will tell you, there is nothing harder that they've ever done in their life than to step into this arena of foster and adoption. They'll tell you that. But there's also nothing, there's nothing else that will sanctify you to help you learn the heart of the Father and stepping into this realm. Because there's nothing that you and I can say or believe that will show the gospel more than what we do for orphans in the world. There's no more pure and faultless picture of the love of the Father. So, here's the wrap up today. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I don't know what you have been called to do. I can't answer that piece for you. But I can guarantee you have not been called to do nothing. So don't deceive yourself. 
Father, we are grateful that you are a loving Father who stepped in to carry our pain, a pain that you could have saved yourself from. But you bore it with us so that we could be with you. And I pray that you would well up in a whole new wave of people from our church who would be willing to say, I'm gonna be like my father. I'm gonna do for others what he did for me. And we'll bear the pain. We'll endure the sacrifice for the sake of people who don't actually deserve it because that's what you did for us. And it's in Christ we pray, amen. Amen. And thank you so much for joining us today here at the Quad City Podcast. Hey, our desire is that we would each look more and more like Jesus every day, week, month, and year. And we know that that doesn't just come from learning more about him and his word, but by actually applying it to our lives today. We hope that you take this message that you heard today and apply it to your life in a way that makes you honor him. Well, thanks again for joining us today. Be sure to download the Quad City app and we will see you again next time.